0: This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bauerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome back, every Bendy Body. This is the Bendy Bodies podcast, and I'm your host and founder, Dr. Linda Bluestein, the Hypermobility MD. This is going to be a great episode, so be sure to stick around until the very end so you don't miss any of our special hypermobility hacks. As always, this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for personalized medical advice. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Leonard Weinstock with me. Dr. Weinstock is absolutely an amazing gastroenterologist, has published I think 150 papers, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And yeah, and, and he was, and he was um, our guest for episode 34, talking about uh, mast cell and gastrointestinal problems, and that was an extremely popular episode. So I wanted to have him back to talk about some more um, topics that are pertinent to people with EDS and related disorders. So welcome, Dr. Weinstock.
1: My pleasure to be back. Yeah. Thank you, Linda.
0: Of course. Of course, I'm just thrilled to get to chat with you. We've obviously crossed paths in so many different places, and I just love it when when the audience, the Bendy Bodies podcast audience, gets to hear from people like you because they learn so much. So can you start out by just uh, giving us a little bit of a brief bio for those who who either haven't listened to episode 34, or maybe it's not fresh in their minds?
1: Okay, well, I've been in practice uh, since 1985 um, and um, took my training in Rochester, New York for eight years, and then came to Washington University uh, for my GI fellowship, and then went into practice with a very busy private practitioner. We did a lot of teaching, and uh, that was exciting and fun. And then the thing that I really enjoyed a lot was doing clinical research. Uh, Mm. My partner had a very open, curious mind. And we always had these interesting cases, which either turned into case reports or case series or actual studies. And then I've been involved in my own studies, uh, investigator-initiated uh, studies on cefaxin for a variety of things, including restless leg syndrome, rosacea, and uh, interstitial cystitis. Um, I'm very interested in uh, the extra-intestinal manifestations of GI diseases and uh, starting off with the way that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth hits the body, hits the inflammatory pathways, which go systemic. And so I've written papers on this and other things. And then starting in 2016, I became MCAS AWARE. POTS aware and that changed my whole practice and starting off with a paper in uh, 2018 where uh, a patient had severe MCAS and POTS and got better with a unique set of um, armitarium treatment um, activity directed at the autoimmune phenomenon in POTS, uh, the uh, pain problems associated with uh, MCAS using naltrexone and treating underlying small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So, you know, it's uh, I still continue with active colonoscopy screening for cancer, and um, it's a lot to put all that together in one practice, but I'm surviving.
0: <laughs> and and uh, your patients are so lucky to have you because... I think uh, we would all love to have a gastroenterologist who looks at these extra, uh, you know, outside of the gastrointestinal tract, these connections and and things. So um, I'm so grateful to you for all the incredible research that you're doing and all the publications because anyone who's published uh, knows how painful that can sometimes be and the amount of work that goes into it. And so I really appreciate you publishing as much as you have.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: so, can you start out by telling us what? Uh, and I don't know if you said it so eloquently. Was what, Did you say extra gastrointestinal? Extra. In, sem-
1: no, extra intestinal. So, outside extra the gastrointestinal. Yeah. So, okay. like, for instance, uh, a lot of patients with Crohn's disease or irritable bowel which ultimately gets diagnosed as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, have restless leg syndrome. Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating condition. Uh, there's primary, um, there's familial, and then there's secondary restless leg syndrome. And over 50 different diseases and conditions have been associated with restless leg syndrome. And, uh, you know, for something like that to produce the same degree of symptoms, you know, you have to look for... Uh, Commonalities, and one thing that we found, um, Dr. Al, um, Dr. Uh, Arthur Walters and I found, was that most of these things tied together with inflammation. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the watchword of the last decade is inflammation, because we know that you know it's the modus operandi um, for so many syndromes and disorders. And so that was, you know, an exciting uh, review of the literature and theory in a 2012 paper looking at secondary restless leg syndrome, how it uh, manifests, uh, you know, what kind of diseases and c- conditions manifested in the same set of symptoms. And that's in part why it's called a syndrome. But, and we're fascinated, I'm fascinated by syndromes in
0: general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they are really really fascinating, and so many of our patients, I think, you know, present with an unusual what a lot of us used to think were unusual. Those of us that, like you said, if you know, I became MCAS aware in twenty seventeen, but really more aware in twenty nineteen or so, and really started to do more of my practice directed towards MCAS type therapies, but. Um, Those that have not necessarily made that transition yet, I feel like, you know, a person comes in and they might have symptoms and various different uh, bodily systems, right? And so people often are not validated by their practitioner because they're the physician or whoever they're seeing thinks, oh, these things can't possibly be connected. So what would you say to those types of uh, physicians that have never thought of these kinds of things as being connected before?
1: you have to believe in the patient that they're not mm-hmm. making things up. I mean, it just seems it, sometimes, you know, when you sit down with the patients and they sh- check off all the symptoms is like, is it possible that they could have all these conditions? Well, when you really get into MCAS and you accept it, you understand it. um, The answer is yes. It's, you just say, okay, that's MCAS. Yep. That's MCAS. Yep. That's MCAS. Yep, that's MCAS. I mean, you know, and the problem with physicians there are several different things number 1 they don't have a lot of time and so anything out of their wheelhouse they want to refer away or disregard it's just easier that way if you don't know it if you don't study it you know then you know it's easy to disregard dispense with the patient dispense with the validation and then the problem with syndrome, I mean, it actually is, you know, defined medically as a unique set of symptoms with or without a known cause. And the problem is, I mean, there's plenty of syndromes that actually have known causes and biomarkers like blood tests or manometry, um, uh or urine tests that's abnormal and um and yet the word syndrome simply drives away many physicians from thinking mm-hmm. uh sensibly if you will um and and really um like for instance mast cell activation syndrome yeah we have um blood and urine tests that can validate the patient as having a disease, if you will, uh, because that's what it is. I I frankly now there is a condition called mast cell activation disease, which um, the way it's uh, defined is it's a, a category of illnesses that include systemic mastocytosis, which is a malignant disease of the mast cells, uh, mast cell leukemia, which is extremely rare disease where Pops up in the blood, and you can see mast cells in the blood, which in general you can't, and mast cell activation syndrome. So that's the um, umbrella term for those three conditions. But mast cell activation disease, you know, it'd be nice if we could just change uh, MCAS into MCAD of its own right. Perhaps MCAD 1 and MCAD mm. 2 could be mm-hmm. systemic massocytosis and MCAD3 could be uh, mast cell leukemia. But, you know, even in uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, irritable bowel syndrome, I like to call um, somebody who's got a positive antibody test uh, that forms after an infection, autoimmune irritable bowel syndrome. Um, or more to the point, irritable, uh, more to the point, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth associated with autoimmune phenomenon. So, you know, if we could just zero down to what are biomarkers and accept Mm -hmm. that syndrome as a disease, I think people can, you know, understand doctors and patients can understand it better that we're dealing with the real deal.
0: Yeah. And actually, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes of which there is a biomarker for all but one type. And so it's interesting that we still call it Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, like the the vascular type, for example. It's still vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome when it could be vascular Ehlers-Danlos disease because we do have a biomarker for that. So that is really interesting.
1: Right, but but your biomarker is your physical exam. I mean, if you mm-hmm. have the the physical findings, the bite and scale. I mean, why is why is it still called a syndrome? I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't get
0: it, frankly. <sighs> yeah, there's a lot of things I don't get. That's for sure. <laughs> um, okay, so I wanted to talk specifically about abdominal pain because I feel like this is such a common thing that. I see in my patients. I, I definitely didn't appreciate until I started seeing more patients how many people have some type of uh, abdominal or gastrointestinal type um, symptoms. So, how commonly do you see joint hypermobility in the people that you are evaluating with abdominal pain?
1: Oh, quite often. Um, first of all, there was a an article at a Mayo Clinic looking at, let's say, a 20-year period of their hypermobile EDS patients, and 67% had significant gastrointestinal disorders. So just from that point, let's go back. Mast cell activation syndrome, um, MCAS, I think the majority of patients have GI symptoms. Now, certainly, of course, every patient I see has has GI symptoms because I'm a gastroenterologist. They're coming to me for a second or third or fourth opinion regarding their unremitting refractory, um, irritable bowel, chronic nausea, um, syndrome or, or chronic constipation or diarrheal disease associated with an underlying Syndrome of some type or another, and it often, once uh, you know, that once they've had their two or three colonoscopies, two endoscopies, yeah, that you've ruled out Crohn's disease and celiac, yeah, something's got to be there. And often, I diagnose MCAS, and um, and so it's extremely common as far as mast cells. um, There's just a tremendous number of mast cells in the gut, um, and that reservoir um, is what reacts to food or um, food allergens most often and can cause pain locally. Um, Years ago, there was a study of just IBS patients. Um, This was before, a year before, in fact, uh, MCAS was uh, discovered. Uh, by Dr. Mulderings, but in 2006, Barbara, in 2004 as well, is, uh, they studied a biopsy uh, from irritable bowel syndrome patients, and they looked for mast cells, and the closer the mast cells to the nerves, and there was more pain, and they also saw tryptase and histamine in the uh, lining of the intestine, whether it be irritable bowel with constipation or diarrhea. And uh, this was one of the first times that we really have a, a biomarker or a st- actually a study, if you will, of a mechanism of action that explained some cases of irritable bowel syndrome.
0: So are you saying that in some patients, the mast cell and the, and the nerve endings were closer together than in other patients?
1: Yeah, so controls, yeah, compared to controls, there were no mast cells next to sensory nail, uh, neurons, uh, whereas in IBS patients, they were closer, and the closer they were to the uh, nerves, the more pain, which kind of makes sense.
0: hmm hmm and, and you've mentioned some of the co-occurring um, GI symptoms that you see, but can you uh, maybe fill us in on if there's any other oh. ones that... <laughs>
1: bloating is a big one i didn't Mm -hmm. mention bloating i didn't mention irritable bowel type symptoms but that means abdominal pain diarrhea constipation both or just one chronic nausea or intermittent nausea is a big one uh Difficulty swallowing. Um, many of my patients have problems, especially in the upper esophagus, with uh, both liquids and solids. And I've done esophageal manometry, checking the pressures of the contraction waves, and um, can see abnormalities that um, are, you know, common. Um, but nobody puts it together with an underlying syndrome such as MCAS. And the other aspect of of um, MCAS is bloating. And I did a study, along with others, looking at my patients with bloating, how many patients had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, how many had dysbiosis, uh, as suggested by methane, excretion, and how many had a normal test. And so basically 30% of my MCAS patients with GI symptoms, uh, 87% had bloating, had uh, abnormal hydrogen levels, um, something we could treat, um, reduce the amount of hydrogen and improve, and also reduce the inflammation that activates the mast cells. 10% had methane. And then um, the rest actually were normal, but they still had severe bloating. And um, I have um, seen um, x-rays on patients with um, acute attacks of MCAS where there's distension. And a lot of times, there's just a lot of fluid in the middle of the intestines that just swell things up uh, and excrete fluids. Uh, into the lining and through into the lumen, which is the channel or the bowel itself. And that's very painful as it stretches, but also it takes up room in the gut. And so this spontaneous uh, bloating is a very common thing in uh, MCAS patients.
0: Is that something that you can actually see on CT or ultrasound?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I am preparing a um, manuscript now where a patient um, had multiple attacks. He was undiagnosed of MCAS until I saw him, but his job was to inspect homes. And many of the homes were Mm. moldy. And so he'd go into the home and then he'd rush out onto the front lawn, have cramping, abdominal pain vomiting um and sometimes diarrhea I mean, it was a major mess of course uh um a major problem and then some of the attacks were so severe that he took he had four hospitalizations and oh. on each one there was distension with um mainly fluid but some air uh and and one of the um at his third admission. Uh, They took him to surgery to look for an obstruction, and they couldn't find anything, no adhesions, nothing. And so um, this is uh, the extreme example of a patient who subsequently was diagnosed with MCAS. I told him to take MCAS therapy, which helped him, and he wore a mask when he went into homes, but it really was getting out of the environment completely and changing jobs that um, took away the um, mycotoxin trigger that led to attacks of MCAS.
0: Wow, that's an incredible case. I'm so glad you're writing that up because that's really interesting. And I wanna um, ask, but also I I know the answer, but I want other people to hear the answer. Is it always that obvious?
1: Well, it wasn't obvious to anybody else but me. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, that's true. I mean, you have to have a history. It's always history, history, history mm-hmm. in medicine to really know. I mean, you, you have to look for triggers, um, whether it be tick-borne illnesses, mycotoxins, uh, which keep things activated. Um, on a personal note, um, I have... Um, IBS with a positive anti-vinculin antibody from food poisoning, um, mm. uh, 40 years ago and some mild irritable bowel, but my problem was really rosacea, which, mm. and ocular rosacea, which I published, uh, to be associated with SIBO. And, um, I got a lot better in, um, in my eyes and skin and with antibiotic therapy. Using Rifaximin. Uh, But I was living in a moldy home, and ultimately the asthma got worse and some brain fog. But I moved to an apartment, and uh, my eyes got completely better. Uh, I went back to my ophthalmologist, and every time I had gone, there were abnormalities of my momobion glands, the things that make tears and um, and then they basically reversed completely. So, getting away from mold uh, really made a big difference as it's an inflammatory con- condition. Uh, so, that's important. Uh, chemical um, exposures. I think that there was one patient that I didn't really investigate his occupation well enough kind of had a feeling that it might have been related but he was a paint salesman and when he would um go on trips um i thought well maybe he was flying maybe it was the flight the altitude um the atmospheric pressure uh the stress of the but what it was ultimately and i didn't really realize that that That's what they did at the meetings, but they would pop the can of paint and then he would smell that and that would activate his MCAS and um, then he would, you know, have severe abdominal pain, diarrhea, and nausea and vomiting requiring ER visits. For a while, I used our intravenous protocol, which would help get him over this, Um, and I even used chemo agent, because nothing else was working well. So imatinib uh, was used with great success. But it was uh, him telling me that he retired, and he was feeling terrific, uh, and he thought it was due to the paint, and it made sense that that chemical exposure the VOC, the volatile organic uh, chemicals were activating hem. So you got to think about that. The chemicals, you got to think about heavy metals. Um, Lots of patients um, who are older have uh, the amalgam in their teeth or they have an implant or they have mesh and
0: uh, that can activate it as well. That's really interesting, and I apologize for my use of the word "obvious" because I'm sure it was not obvious for for quite some time. Once uh, once you identify in your patients, once you identify a pattern like that, is it usually pretty straightforward? I guess is maybe be a better word.
1: Well, the straightforward one are some of the exposures um, mm. and, and and I do now ask those four basic questions uh, tick infections uh, mold mycotoxins chemical um, and um, and amalgam heavy metal so I always ask those now that's just part of my uh, questionnaire but um, you gotta look heavy but the difficult ones are the tick-borne and also the mycotoxin, you know, is it enough that you've lived in a home that had mold? Is that really, are you uh, the one who has um, the genetic marker that allows you to get ill with mycotoxins? Maybe it's not enough that you've lived in a home when you were a kid, but it's it's possible that, that those, um, toxic changes, and also I, I meant to say um, infections in addition to tick-borne such as viral infections like we're having with COVID. So that's another big one that is addition in addition to uh, common triggers that are really important to ask about.
0: And you mentioned about food allergy, I think, a little bit ago. Um, I know sometimes testing for those can be very challenging. Do you have particular ways that you test for food allergy?
1: Well, I first do the exclusion diet of Mm. gluten-free, dairy-free, including dairy protein, and uh, yeast-free and low histamine diet. And that takes away a lot of things, of course, really difficult to Mm. follow it, but... um, can really make a big difference, and you can rechallenge patients. I encourage patients to challenge themselves with one thing at a time. But food allergy per se, the problem testing for that is if you don't have hives, then skin testing is not going to be effective, or RAST blood testing is not going to be uh, helpful. If you send patients to an allergist saying who don't have those, you know, allergic obvious allergic changes, it's going to be very difficult for them to come up with a testing program. So, you know, there's an IgG test. Now, that might reflect um, increased intestinal permeability and some of the uh, chemicals um, or the immune globulins um, associated with foods might be helpful but I, I really don't order those in general
0: i was i was curious to ask because i think there are some dietitians that do order those pretty frequently so i've had patients sometimes come to me and list off a whole series of food allergies and i you know depending on the way that the testing was done i encourage them to kind of keep an open mind and because isn't it true that you could think that you're allergic to a food but maybe you're not with those with those tests. Well, that's
1: right. That's very true. Um, There's another test that I used to do a fair amount, a little expensive, $350 called the LEAP test, L-E-A-P. And that looks for mediator reactive testing. And, um, you know, about 60% of people found things, well, many things were found. Basically, they put the blood the blood cells, the white cells uh, adjacent to the um, like a hundred different foods and chemicals. And they say what you react to, whether it's red, yellow, or green in terms of the degree of reactivity. Hmm. Maybe that's a form of um, foods getting into the gut lining, activating the mast cells that are there. We don't, we don't really know uh, because it's supposed to be leukocytes, um, white blood cells. So it's kind of an odd test. Sometimes it's helpful. Yet another way to look for food reactivity.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And when we talk about um, extraintestinal causes of gastrointestinal symptoms, I know one of the other things that maybe we might want to touch on is uh, compression syndromes. And people with EDS especially are at risk for that. So could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Right. Um, So there's um, a big one, which is median arcuate ligament syndrome, MALS. So that presentation is upper abdominal pain, usually associated with eating, virtually always, um, in the upper abdomen and sometimes right upper abdomen. Uh, It can have nausea with it um it tends to be in elders danlos patients almost completely um it can be associated uh, with patients who have mcas and pots as well so you could have the whole triad there because and somehow it's um it can really be related uh, because mcas and pots ultimately can actually get somewhat better when you relieve release the ligament that's uh, pushing on the nerve plexus, but there's also a requirement that the surgeon denervate uh, the or disrupt the nerve complex in that area to get relief of pain. And so um, that's one of the reasons why um, there's a test that the surgeon wants to see to be abnormal, namely an endoscopic ultrasound-guided uh, uh, de- denervation uh, or numbing, with, if you will, with a steroid and uh, lidocaine mixture to see if that takes away the pain for one or two days. And if it does, then surgery can uh, be beneficial. Uh, all too often, though, the vascular surgeons just want to get in there, release that ligament that is pulling up on the celiac artery Uh, but it's not really the compression of the artery per se but it's the compression of the nerves that travel along with the artery and are embedded in that part of the body. So that's one of the most um, important things to recognize. Sometimes uh, one would find a a arterial bruit which is a noise uh, of rushing by um, Whoosh whoosh sound when you're listening to the abdomen, and that but that's only about forty percent diagnosis. Uh, generally requires uh, testing with angiogram or an ultrasound, looking to see if there's a decreased flow with deep inspiration or expiration. Uh, the um, surgery, again, uh, I've mentioned, is often successful, but unfortunately not always. Um, so it's, it can be very frustrating. The other vascular uh, phenomenon that is common uh, is nutcrackers, where the renal vein is compressed. Um, and uh, that can cause blood in the urine and pain. And then there's another one, uh, pelvic uh, compression syndrome, uh, where the uh, left iliac vein is compressed, um, and that creates pelvic pain and varicose veins uh, in the uh, upper thigh and on the vulva, and uh, that has to be treated with a stent. Uh, And um, to stent open the renal vein, but the iliac vein, pardon me. And then they also can embolize the varices, Uh, so that's done by uh, interventional radiology. See, those are the three main ones for um, uh, compression. And then we also have. Ehlers-Danlos can do uh, funny things to the small intestine colon by having such stretchy uh, uh, pelvic uh, and um, uh, peritoneal um, uh, attachments. So we have our guts hanging out, you know, in in our peritoneum, the cavity, in the abdominal cavity, but they're not hanging out running around loose, they're held in place to a certain degree by these connective tissues, which also where the blood vessels and nerves travel. And just like the joints are hypermobile because of extended ligaments and and tendons, uh, the guts are uh, often a problem in EDS because of these attachments are long. So the small intestine can be uh, loopy and droopy. Uh, visceroptosis is the word for the small intestine drooping down into the pelvis, and that creates uh, kind of a sump, a sewer, if you will, uh, where uh, bacteria can uh, Reside, and you can get small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and then the you, one can get dire constipation if the colon droops down, because then the colon goes up and then down like this, and there's a lot to travel, and, uh, and peristalsis may not be normal or not not be normal enough um, to make for a good traveling from point A to point B, uh, and having decent bowel movements.
0: And are there other causes of gastroparesis or slow movement through the upper gastrointestinal tract as well? Or?
1: So we see that in MCAS. Um, it could be due to um, the uh, chemicals of uh, act- activating uh, the um, sympathetic nervous sympathetic, uh, sympathetic nervous system. So we don't have good peristalsis. Um, POTS itself um, is a hypersympathetic st- state. And um, you can either have uh, slow movement. So studies have been done where they either show, you know, slow gastric emptying, but they're also um, in the uh, same group of patients where a number who had fast Emptying. So it mm. doesn't always make sense.
0: Okay. And when you're working up these patients, what are the most common tools that you're using to work them up?
1: Okay. Well, first of all, physical exam, I'm checking for the orthostatic pulse changes of POTS, uh, the biten scale, uh, looking at the heels, looking for the uh, fat uh, extrusions in the heel and uh, the stretchy skin and soft nature of the skin. Then uh, for MCAS on physical exam, looking for hemangiomas, these angiomas, um, cherry red angiomas, but they're also called hemangiomas, are actually fairly common with aging. But when you see them, you ask the patient, do these ever get Uh, enlarged or multiply itchy or burning. And uh, that's one of the skin signs, of course, um, dermatographism. um, And you can even ask people when they scratch themselves that they see lines, but you can just scratch somebody in the beginning of the exam to see if it comes up, suggesting that there may be increased mast cells in the um, skin. Mm -hmm. I also see, uh, telangiectasias, little blood veins. Um, theoretically, this is from uh, vascular growth chemicals uh, produced by mast cells. And then, uh, you know, you're examining for abdominal pain. You're listening for bruise, um, You're looking for edema. Uh, you're looking for uh, red eyes of um, conjunctivitis. And then uh, there's testing uh, for the um, two plasma tests, histamine and um, prostaglandin D2. Uh, You're testing for chromogranin A, uh, which uh, appears not unfrequently, but can be caused by proton pump inhibitors and chronic renal insufficiency and congestive heart failure. Usually you have a history for that or labs telling you. And then tryptase. um, One generally gets a tryptase, not because in MCAS one expects it to be elevated, um, but if it is elevated, you want to make sure it's not over 20, because if it is, then you want to look for the malignant form of mast cell disease. Uh, We also have um, 6% of uh, the population having elevated tryptase levels from this hereditary uh, gene duplication called HAT, which um, has a tryptase level that's elevated from baseline. But by itself, that is uh, inert chemical and doesn't cause symptoms. But when you have patients who have HAT, they can have MCAS as well. And then there are three urine tests that are commonly done. Uh, the leukotriene 4 the alpha, uh, the two-three diner alpha uh, prostaglandin F2, and uh, the N-methylhistamine. So that's what our group does in terms of testing. Um, often the um, allergists will test tryptase by itself and tell a patient the tryptase level not high, therefore you cannot have MCAS, uh, but they're really not paying attention to their own consensus group where their criteria says abnormal tryptase or tryptase that goes up by 20% plus 2 during an attack or lesser specific chemicals such as N-methylhistamine and prostaglandin D2 or heparin. Um, so, I mean, the problem is many of the allergists look at just the first part of their uh, criteria for labs. They also uh, think that most of the patients with MCAS have, uh, have a terrible thing called anaphylaxis, which is potentially Put people at risk for death, but in fact, you know, is relatively rare in my patients with MCAS.
0: And how often do you see positive findings in those lab labs? About
1: seventy percent of the time. Hmm. And then the, the the key thing is though is you have this set symptoms, either classic mast cell symptoms in two or more systems. And for some um, studies that we've done, we've actually increased that number to five systems out of 11 um, that are characteristic for MCAS. And then with mast cell-directed therapy, patients get better. That fulfills a major and a minor criteria leading towards a diagnosis of MCAS.
0: Okay. And are you sending your samples to any particular lab or?
1: Well, generally to Mayo, but uh, we have, uh, and the key thing is how you collect the uh, specimens. The urine has to be collected cold and then frozen and shipped. The two plasma tests, the histamine and prostaglandin D2, need to be spun cold, either in a cold centrifuge, and a number of hospitals have that. Um, I have a regular centrifuge, um, but my tech keeps the jackets that hold the test tubes in place in the freezers, so they spin cold that way. And um, with that, uh, about uh, 37% of patients have a positive um, plasma test, uh, and then um, about 15 to 20% have positive chromogranin tests and much less have uh, tryptase level.
0: So are they getting the labs drawn in your office then?
1: Yeah, they are.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. So what are some things that people can do if they are, you know, not able to come see you and they're not able to find a gastroenterologist who is, you know, taking this kind of approach, which honestly, I don't know anyone else who does. Um, uh, is there, do you have any suggestions for how they can? Yeah, yeah.
1: I do. I think that the, um, the integrative functional doctors have jumped on this bandwagon. And so they're uh, a route and you could look up integrative doctors in your area. And some of them also do um, um, counseling uh, in different states. So telemedicine can work for some of these doctors. Um, I think even naturopathic doctors can play a good role. Now, just for my protocol for step one therapy, the basic first step, um, all things um, except for one are over the counter. Uh, Mm -hmm. H1 blockers such as loratadine, Zyzol, uh, Allegra, uh, um, Pepsid, famotidine, which is a H2 blocker, um, quercetin, uh, which is a flavonoid, which uh, uh, stabilizes the mast cell, and vitamin C and D, which also stabilize the mast cell. And then what you can do um, furthermore is if you can't find a local physician, uh, who's, let's say, a functional doctor that's familiar with low-dose naltrexone, which I will pretty much always prescribe, assuming the patient's not on narcotics. It's an antinarcotic that basically tricks the body into making endorphins, which suppresses T and B cells, but it also because it suppresses um, a toll receptor and suppresses cytokine production, Decreases the activation of the mast cell, so I like that. Um, and there's um, help to get a, a physician to prescribe that, um, you because they have uh, multi-state um, licenses, or there's actually uh, very possibly a doctor in your own hometown or adjacent town or state that will prescribe, and you can find that in two resources ldnscience.org, and ldnresearchtrust.org. So uh, in a little study I did of my first 116 patients with MCAS who took naltrexone, 60% had positive effects, 20% that didn't help, and 20% had side effects that uh, made them want to stop. Uh, The good thing about naltrexone is that if you have a side effect, you stop, which you can do immediately, uh, it goes away. Uh, So uh, things like, uh, you know, insomnia, uh, jittery feeling, or vivid dreams are three of the most common things that patients have. Uh, Sometimes you don't get that, especially if you go up slowly on the dose. And so I think it's always worth a try because, In MCAS, you know, just one drug trying to treat it, it never works because the mast cell has 200 receptors and half of them are activating and uh, therefore trying one drug with one method of toning down the mast cell is not going to do it. It's always a cocktail.
0: Yeah. And and those are some of my absolute favorite treatments as well, especially LDN, which I take personally. And um, I think it probably has been one of, if not the most helpful thing for me and improving my levels of pain and my quality of life and physical functioning. Um, So yeah. And I, and I find it uh, very effective in my patients, especially, I'm sure you do the same thing. If there's a side effect, sometimes if you change up the formulation and, you know, get give rid of some excipients or something, or, you know, just use a different filler or capsule or whatever that, or, or go up slower Down. on the dose or yeah. decrease
1: the dose. Yeah. Sometimes it yeah. could be just
0: enough. Yeah. 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 So that's a perfect lead in to um, the project that we're working on together. Um, I would love for you to share with the Bendy bodies podcast listeners, what it is that we're up to and um, how they might be able to help.
1: We are up to creating a documentary to bring to light the evil triad, as I like to say, um, EDS, POTS, and MCAS. And what we're going to do is have high-quality filming, uh, patient stories, doctor's opinions, way we, uh, we've stumbled onto this, how it's affected our ch- uh, practices, um, and how we feel like we've been able to help patients, and how important it is that this is recognized. Because um, the problem is, is that physicians who get out of med school often don't pick up many many new things they they are set with a set of um, tools if you will and and basic text learning uh, but you know the new things that come out uh, you see periodically, and, and many, many times it's because a drug rep comes in and says, Hey, we've got this new drug for irritable bowel syndrome. Um, you know, let me show you the studies. And, um, and if it wasn't for that, you might not have heard about it. Or there's some uh, big companies like Kaiser that don't let you prescribe, um, Medicines other than generic, so you're never going to be able to prescribe something new that's um, out there for a new uh, new disease or um, or a, a new way to treat the disease. So what we want to do is uh, improve um, awareness and um, and give hope to patients who have it. Uh, again, like you said. You've got patients out there who can't find a doctor. We hope that this will start changing minds, perhaps um, with the other aspect to our movie, which is a educational library to for uh, doctors and or patients to tune into and listen to lectures uh, will be helpful. Uh, and then the ultimate goal is that will be able to, you know, get the program into the first couple of years of medical school where the patient, where the doctors have an open mind. You know, once you get out into a busy rotation and you're spitting things out in a very uh, mandatory way, then, uh, a, or cookie cutter way is a better way of saying it, then your mind gets closed, just because it is easier to work that way. So what are we doing? Um, uh, we're going to post a um, link. It's uh, mcastfund.mcastfund.com. Mcastfund.com, um, and hope that uh, we can get uh, contributions or donations. Um, no matter how small, uh, would be helpful and appreciated. And um, also to make you and others in your family aware that this is coming down the pike and something that validates what you are experiencing.
0: And I do want to point out that uh, you and me, and there's uh, Dr. Dempsey and Dr. Kinsella and, uh, and uh, Jill, Jill Brooke, Brooke. Yeah, are are the team that's working on this. All of us are volunteering our time. And so I just want to make sure that people know that, you know, none of us are taking a salary or anything like that for for doing this.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I've donated. Others are donating themselves um, as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we're all donating money and time. And um, I think, you know, when you start treating MCAS and POTS and EDS, if you don't have compassion, if it doesn't strike compassion and you don't buy it, then it's a tragedy. Uh, and it's a tragedy for your patients and in a way for you as a doctor. Just You're just not getting it. And what we want to do is for doctors to get it and help their patients
0: yeah because it's really ironic. a lot of people call these conditions invisible, but they're really not. You just need to have your eyes opened, and once your eyes are opened, then you can't miss it. Right.
1: so it's invisible to the doctor yeah <laughs> unfortunately yeah. um but I mean you know what's interesting sometimes is you know. You talk to patients about, you know, are you double-jointed? That's the fastest way I get to, you know, are you hypermobile? And all of them know that they've been able to do party tricks, uh, but um, they don't necessarily realize it comes with consequences. And so the right. abdominal pain that they're having or the pelvic pain that they're having is a real issue. Um,
0: yeah. no yeah. no i i I definitely see that, and i I tell people all the time, stop the party tricks long before they start to hurt because by the time they start to hurt it's it's too late and and another point I want to make with these um, syndromes and being invisible is that um you don't necessarily have to be an expert if for the for the physicians listening to this, you don't have to be an expert, but you have to have an open mind and an open heart and want to help because I think it can be intimidating you know listening to someone like you who has such deep knowledge of these conditions but i think most people most patients they want to be seen and they want to be heard and they want to feel like you care and that's the first step towards healing so i think yeah. if we could do that for them and you know we don't we're we, we're not expected to have all the answers or all the answers right away anyway these people can then start to get more information and and you know learn how to make the referrals or who to refer to and that kind of thing so
1: yeah it's funny when I first learned about this, I did a uh, grand rounds and uh, at my hospital, and then later at the uh, university for um, GI rounds, and I thought, well, this is amazing. Everybody should learn about it, know it, about it, and, and what it's done is now I'm basically getting all the referrals for it. So <laughs> it uh, didn't help me and my effort to spread the word and have people take up the sword to help.
0: Yeah. We need more people to, I, I'm i going to mark that as a quote that we're going to want to take. We need more people to take up the sword.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> definitely. So, yeah. okay. Did, did I miss any questions or did you have any final thoughts, anything that you wish I had asked?
1: No, I think, I think you've got it. I think you've got it all.
0: Okay, great. Um, I always like to ask for hypermobility hacks. So, if you have any particular, and it could be an MCAS hack, by the way. Um, so, if there's if there's any like anything there that you would like to share, we would love to hear it.
1: Right, I would definitely keep in mind the vascular and compression uh, syndromes because the bendy body folks are prone to get it and it it's not quite obvious and it takes diagnostic testing um, to look and so you have to know uh, to be able to talk to the radiologist to tell them exactly what you're looking for and um, you know you need to ask your doctor you know uh, about what's going on so if you're an eds patient and you have blood in the urine you got to think about uh, the compression of the renal vein uh, and um, uh, nutcracker syndrome,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which causes which can cause abdominal pain.
0: Right. Do you happen to know the success rate for the surgeries for any of those at all? Or? Sure well, um,
1: I would say um, in the eighty to ninety percent range. Oh,
0: so high. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Really high. Okay. And where can people find you online?
1: Well, uh, my website has a lot of information on MCAS. It's going through um, a new buildup, uh, changing from one company to another. So it's not quite where it was, but it will get back to it. But I, I do have literature and lectures on MCAS and um, educational information, including my approach to MCAS, which is a 15-page document um, with specific Treatments that can help specific symptoms at dot net. I am uh, limiting my patients to Missouri because that's the only place I have a license, so I don't practice out of state or do telemedicine. And um, I think those, uh, I, oh, I, I do have things on the internet, uh, YouTube as well.
0: Okay. Okay, great. And we'll make sure to put links to those things um, also in the show notes so people can access that information. Okay. Well, you have been listening to the Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD podcast today. And our guest has been Dr. Leonard Weinstock. And Dr. Weinstock, it has been such a pleasure to chat with you today. I am just so impressed with your incredible depth of knowledge, generosity with information. And um, it's just always a pleasure to get to chat with you. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bendy Bodies with a Hypermobility MD podcast. Visit our new website at bendybodiespodcast.com, where you can now view guest profiles and show notes with links to products and journal articles. Leave me a comment, sign up for updates, leave a review or a voicemail, and access the podcast on your favorite player all directly from our website. You may hear your voicemail in a future episode where we answer your question or dive into your gracious feedback. Follow us on Instagram at bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories, so be a buddy and engage our community by using the hashtag BendyBuddy. That's hashtag B-E-N-D-Y-B-U-D-D-Y. You can also find me, Dr. Linda Bluestein, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn at HypermobilityMD. Visit hypermobilitymd.com for information about medical services and one-on-one coaching. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. Do not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you have. Opinions shared are that of the guest and do not necessarily represent the views of the host or any particular organization. Sponsorship of the podcast does not necessarily mean an endorsement. Thank you for being a part of our community and we'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfein premium braces and supports designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.